heaven I'm in heaven And my heart beats so that I can hardly speak And I seem to find the happiness I see When we're out together dancing cheek to cheek the Purple Rose of Cairo is the 13th film written and directed by Woody Allen, first released in 1985. This film holds a special place in Woody Allen's filmography. It is Allen's own favourite of his own films, whilst he consistently rags on just about every other one he's ever made. Even now, he claims it is the film that is closest to his original vision. From it, we can see what it is that Allen, the filmmaker, really wants to do. Beloved by critics, if not so much by audiences, it's the kind of film that only Alan could make. Mia Farrow stars as Cecilia, a down-and-out waitress in Depression-era Jersey. She's married to a man who beats her and she is poor and unhappy. Her only escape is film and she sees everyone at the local cinema. Black and white, dramatic and sophisticated escapades such as The Purple Rose of Cairo, the film within the film. And just as her life hits rock bottom, one of the characters in the film leaps off the screen to whisk her away. Welcome to the Woody Allen Pages podcast by me, the creator of the Woody Allen Pages website. This week, episode 14, we look at 1985's The Purple Rose of Cairo, how it was conceived, how it was made, and how Allen doesn't hate this one. Spoilers are everywhere, so watch the film first and then come back. And I seem to find the happiness I see. When we're out together dancing cheek to cheek. You know, I still can't get over the fact that 24 hours ago I was in an Egyptian tomb. I didn't know any of you wonderful people. And here I am now. I'm on the verge of a madcap Manhattan weekend. Woody Allen in the 80s is on a hell of a roll. He made many great films in this decade, but he also got the production machine behind him to really hum. The business of making a film a year starts paying off artistically by the mid-80s, with a solid team in place. This film comes after the wonderful Zelig and the wonderful Broadway Danny Rose, and would be followed by the wonderful Hannah and his sisters and the wonderful Radio Days. Each one was acclaimed, original and distinct. Woody Allen in the 80s is just killing it. The Purple Rose of Cairo is one of the highlights of this brilliant 80s run. It doesn't feel like any of the other films he's ever made and mixed deep ideas with humour and heart. It's a far cry from Annie Hall, Manhattan or the films that had helped Allen stake his reputation. It's not wildly jumping around from idea to idea with a large cast. It's not in a modern, sophisticated metropolitan setting. The Purple Rose of Cairo is one of Allen's smaller stories. And that story revolves around Cecilia, played by Mia Farrow. She's a lonely waitress in Depression-era small-town America. She's a bit of a loser. She's not the kind of protagonist you want to be. She's not really a hero, so to speak. But you do feel for her, and you might even relate to her a little. I'm guessing Cecilia's were not uncommon in the Depression and towns like this. A lot of people were broke or scraping by. In 1935, the Depression was around six years in, and people were kind of resigned to struggle. Alan was born in 1935, so he didn't live through it, but the people of his parents' generation did. I wonder if Alan based any of Cecilia on the women he knew as a kid. Shouldn't you be getting back? I want to live. I want to be free to make my own choices. Right now, the country's not in such great shape. What do you mean? We're in the middle of a depression. Everybody's very poor. 
I got plenty. Look at this. <laughs> but but they need you. The story doesn't work without you. Cecilia, I'm in love with you. The main thing for Cecilia is she loves going to the cinema. It's fun looking at how cinemas used to work. One big release on a single screen. Going to the cinema was more like going to the theater. And places like the cute small town cinema in this film were probably still around and getting by when Alan was a kid and started going to see movies. Alan was very clever to set his story in the 30s because there has never been a greater disparity between the lives of those on screen and the people watching them. People couldn't have a glamorous life, so they would live vicariously through movie stars. A young Woody Allen also loved these films. Allen didn't grow up in the 30s, but he too would escape at his local Brooklyn cinema and watch glamorous movie star adventures. It was seeing the island of Manhattan portrayed on the big screen that made Alan want to move there. He remarked in an interview that he was fascinated to see the hopelessly chic white telephone in one film. And the films that Cecilia falls in love with are very much white telephone films. This is the period known as the golden age of Hollywood, and pretty much that era in its prime. This was the era of the movie star that never had a hair out of place and always had the right things to say. And adventures were usually about the upper class, often set in exotic European locations. Films that are still brilliant today, like Casablanca, Gone with the Wind, and The Wizard of Oz. But not just those history-making blockbusters, there's also so many charming romantic adventures that still stand up today. Bringing Up Baby, It Happened One Night, Philadelphia Story, and more. They were big on romance and happy endings, and probably white telephones. <sighs> The white telephone, oh. I've dreamed of having a white telephone. Your dreams are my dreams. My whole life I've wondered what it would be like to be this side of the screen. You see that city out there waking up? Uh, That's yours for the asking. My heart's beating so fast. Another great example, of course, is Top Hat, the 1935 film that Alan uses in this story. The film that Cecilia goes to see at the very end of the film. I'm not sure if Alan had any other film in mind, but Top Hat scene of Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers in beautiful clothes doing the big dance number is about as glamorous as anything set to film. Alan actually had the story for this film for quite a while. He toyed with it, but couldn't make it work. The idea of someone coming to life and walking off the screen is not terribly original, but it allowed Alan to talk about one of his favorite themes, that the things that make you happy in this life are important, even if they are delusions. So it was that simple premise that grew. Cecilia's life changes when a dashing character named Tom Baxter, who plays a minor but important role in the latest film, literally walks off the screen. That film is The Purple Rose of Cairo, very much a white telephone film. And what you have to do when you have a big concept film like this is you have to pay off all the possibilities of how this new world works. Alan does a really great job of it in a number of ways. There's screwball romance as Tom and Cecilia, two very different people, are forced together and their cultures clash. Tom is Mr. Positive and doesn't realise Cecilia can't just let herself go for the romance and why everyone isn't privileged. That screwball romance, of course, becomes a triangle when the real actor, Gil, comes into the picture. You know, I still can't get over the fact that 24 hours ago I was in an Egyptian tomb. I didn't know any of you wonderful people. And here I am now, I'm on the verge of a madcap Manhattan weekend. My God, you must really love this picture. Me? You've been here all day, and I've seen you here twice before. You mean me? Yes, you, you, you. 
This is the fifth time you're seeing this. Henry, come here, quickly. I gotta speak to you. Oh, my God! Listen, old sport, you're on the wrong side. Tom, get back here! There's fish-out-of-water stuff for Tom as he adjusts to a new world and takes up most of the middle of the film. I particularly love how he expects the world to just fade out just when the kissing becomes more passionate. I imagine Alan had a lot of fun coming up with all the places his character would clash with the world, like not understanding that a woman is pregnant or how his money doesn't work. And of course, Alan has to bring God into it when Tom and Cecilia visit a church. This is a church. You, you do believe in God, don't you? Meaning? The, the reason for everything, the, the world, the universe. Oh, I think I know what you mean. The two men who wrote uh, The Purple Rose of Cairo, Irving Sachs and R.H. Levine, the writers who collaborate on films. No, 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 I'm talking about something much bigger than that. No, think for a minute. A reason for everything. Otherwise, it'd be like a movie with no point. For me, the funniest parts are the situational comedy parts as the theatre owner or the studio lawyers struggle to deal with a new status quo of characters coming to life. I love that Alan portrays the film industry as purely selfish, worried first about reputation and money, and utterly unimpressed by the miracle of what has happened. As your lawyer, I advise you to get control of it fast. A character from one of your productions on the loose? Who knows what he's capable of? Robbery, murder. I see lawsuits. There's a lot of fun on screen, as well as the excellent cast of the Purple Rose of Cairo film dealing with the crisis of someone in their story walking off screen. It's Woody Allen, so it immediately becomes existential. We learn that the characters have an inner life. They are aware of what reel of film they are due to appear, and most horrifically, they fear the lights being turned off. Stop arguing! Maybe you should just turn the projector off. No! No, don't turn the projector off! No, no, it gets black and we disappear. The film within the film is almost cartoonishly escapist. One character complains that they are bored of staying at the Ritz in Paris. Everyone wears tuxedos just hanging around the house. And that house, of course, is a penthouse apartment looking over Central Park. And of course, the apartment has a piano. Alan throws in all the tropes. There's, of course, a big nightclub number an exotic trip to Morocco, a caddy countess, and a sassy servant. If you follow what Alan's doing here, it's quite clever. We start with just three characters, but as the film gets more serious, he relies on the cast in the film to bring humor, and on walks more ridiculous characters that we've never seen before, each more overdressed and louder than the last. The last new character, the communist sympathizer, doesn't really look like any of the other characters. He's just a good punchline, and whatever is happening in the town, we know that there's chaos building on the screen of the Jewel Theatre. It's great tension in the writing, and the cast here look like they're having a lot of fun. I don't want to sit around and wait. That's exactly what they want. Who? The bosses. Oh. Oh. Look at us! Sitting around, slaves to some stupid scenario. Meanwhile, the fat cats in Hollywood are getting rich on our work. Studio heads, writers, movie stars. And of course, Alan pays off the premise wonderfully in the third act by reversing it. If someone can walk out of the screen, then someone can walk into one. And Cecilia gets to play out her fantasy. And then it's interesting what Alan doesn't care about. He never even attempts to explain why or how Tom Baxter has walked off the screen. Cecilia just treats him like a real man. The lawyers only care about the legal ramifications. The fact someone can walk off the screen is not an international incident. 
It's just something that happens to a small town woman. The premise is not the point. And it's kind of funny how everyone just returns to normal after Tom returns on screen. No one continues to investigate or does anything to make sure it doesn't happen again. We hear that there's other Tom Baxters running around the world. It's funny how we don't care because Alan makes us so invested in Cecilia, the world building takes a step back. This isn't a film where the premise is desperate to show how clever it is and the character work and the human touch gets lost. Basically, this isn't a Christopher Nolan film. I sh uh, thank you so much for the ukulele. Oh, well, don't be offended. I didn't no, mean to... I'm not offended. I'm just... I'm confused. I, I'm married. I, I just met a wonderful new man. He's fictional, but you can't have everything. Look, can I see you later? So Alan sets the idea up and pays it off throughout the film. But there is one part of the story that doesn't work out as expected. For Alan, the expected happy ending, that Cecilia would end up with the man of her dreams, didn't work. It made the story too light. It was only when Alan came up with the unhappy ending that Alan felt like he had a film. That Cecilia would choose the real actor Gil Shepard over the character of Tom Baxter. But Gil would dump her after Tom returns to the screen. It would have been easy for Cecilia to end up with Gil and have it all work out. Alan has always had a chip on his shoulder about being taken seriously. He made a couple of early comedies, but after Annie Hall, he wanted to be a serious filmmaker. He would start to make noise around this time about just giving up comedies for good and directing just dramas. And it's something he would say publicly every five years or so for the rest of his life. The Purple Rose of Cairo, this film, isn't actually very funny, but it's breezy and could be seen as light if Alan didn't deliver a heavy ending. Alan's studio, Orion Pictures, didn't love the ending and rightly so at this point. Alan was still very much a comedian. People go to Woody Allen films to have a romantic and fun time. If this film had a happy ending, audiences would flock. Orion asked Alan if he was sure that that was the ending he wanted to go with. Alan said yes, and that was that. But it wasn't the only time the studio would call Alan about this film. The ending for me makes the film work. And I question how unhappy it is anyway. Yes, Cecilia loses the guy, but boy meets girl isn't the point here. Cecilia walks into the cinema and at the end of the film, she is at her lowest. But she watches Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers on screen and the film ends with her smiling. There is a happy ending here and it's that no matter how shit life gets, there's cinema. There's wonderful stories and movie stars and that will always be there for Cecilia. Forget reality, let's go enjoy a film. Romantic love is not the answer. I think Alan is reaffirming his real love here. Cinema. I want my money back. This is a swindle. There's no story. Mrs. Lucas likes the story. I still think you should turn the projector off and shut down. This could be the work of Reds or anarchists. You can't do that. If he turns off the projector, you're liable to strand this, this Tom Baxter out in the world someplace. You want an extra guy running around? I saw the movie just last week. This is not what happened. Where is the Tom Baxter character? You'll get your money back. I want what happened in the movie last week to happen this week. Otherwise, what's life all about anyway? This film isn't all fun and games. Alan doesn't have much good to say about the men in this film, and it reinforces that idea that romantic love is not the answer. Alan really makes us feel for Cecilia. When Cecilia tries to leave Monk early on and fails, it's utterly heartbreaking. And then Alan piles it on with her getting fired. Of course, the thing that changes her life happens straight after. It creates tension and makes the magical moment even more magical. There's two men in particular who are really rotten. Monk, Cecilia's husband, played by Danny Aiello, is awful. And Alan takes it right to the line. He's abusive, he hits her and cheats. But he's not a significantly evil character. He's just what some of the men in this era were like. 
He's more of a symbol than a character. Your spine grows cold when he finds Tom and Cecilia in the church. And Cecilia's unhappy ending is worse because you know what she's going back to. His presence haunts the film. There was a- oh! Gave you an order. I don't care. I'm tired of taking your orders. You could have killed him. All right. I'm sorry. I didn't mean it. I you hit can't hard. Just, you can't just go through life beating people up. Look, I'm telling you one more time. You coming with me? No, I'm not. The other love interest, Gil the actor, ends up leaving Cecilia without a word when he gets what he wants. Alan gives us a brief glimpse of Gil afterwards, suggesting a little bit of regret. But Alan also sets him up as a bit shallow and ultimately he's unable to overcome his own selfishness. Alan could have left that scene out, but it does give us a small sense that Gil is not the worse. The thing about the horrible men is how it affects the tone of the film. It's one of the great things about this film, how Alan plays around with tone throughout. The film can be funny, but it's not wacky. There is no laugh out loud moments. The bit when Tom discovers that people don't fade out before making love could have been played for a big laugh, but Alan underplays the idea wonderfully. It's romantic, but not saccharine. And even the magical aspects are rooted in a lot of realism. It would be so easy to turn the characters into cartoons when the idea is so big, but even one dimensional Tom gets to do a lot of two dimensional things. The film never goes over the top in any one direction. It's all tightly controlled, and it never gets too light to float away. Where's the fade out? What? Oh, it's when the kissing gets hot and heavy. Just before the, the lovemaking, there's a, there's a fade out. Then what? Then, then we're making love in some private, perfect place. That, that's not how it happens here. What, there's no fade out? No. But when you kissed me, I felt like my heart faded out. And I, I closed my eyes and I, I was in some, some private place. How fascinating. You make, you make love without fading out? <laughs> Alan has been clear over the years that he judges this film as a creative success. And I think that mix of sophisticated tone flavours is what he's been trying to cook. I guess there's stuff I don't love. And really, it just comes down to being such small portions. It's less than 80 minutes if you leave out the credits. It's basically a longish episode of a Netflix drama. And there's probably a bit of padding here. Or at least Alan lets the idea breathe as long as possible. We dwell on Cecilia hanging around the cinema or walking around the town. The scene of Tom in the brothel is cute, but doesn't take us anywhere and doesn't get paid off in any way. Sometimes I think Alan lets the cut drag on just to make up the runtime. He did something similar in Zelig and would do so again in later films. Alan has said that out of all his films, the person he relates to the most is Cecilia from this film. His disposition would be to go see films on his own and get lost in a fantasy. She's lovely, but Alan would write plenty of better characters than this. Cecilia has no inner life and no backstory before this film. She's a character from a fairy tale, not a novel. I'm married. Happily? I, sh I really should get back home. I have to cook dinner. Slip away from your husband tonight. Meet me here. I'll wait for you. I want to learn about the real world with you. I can't. Well, look at it this way. How many times is a man so taken with a woman that he walks off the screen to get her? Alan had played around with making period films before, but he's gotten by with cutting corners. 
He's hidden things in black and white, and Alan would do a much better job of creating period films later with Radio Days, Broadway Danny Rose, Sweet and Lowdown, Magic in the Moonlight, and so many others. But here, he makes it work, and he makes it work this time by basically buying out a town. The town of Piermont, New York is less than an hour from Manhattan, but it couldn't be more different from that busy metropolis. Piermont had a population of just over 2,000 people at the time of filming, and it's not really much more today. The small town took some dressing up to make it look like the Depression era. They took over the main town area and redressed all the shops. Even buildings that were far in the background were window dressed to look like the 1920s, with products marked at 1920s prices confusing the locals, because the shops had to stay open and business had to run during filming. Not every shop owner would comply, so for those shops, Alan and the team covered them up with a train carriage. You can pretty much see it in the second shot of the film, with the first establishing shot of the dual theater. There's a big train carriage there, covering up some shop. Piermont, for their part, are proud of the Woody Allen Association, and celebrates the time that Hollywood came calling, and not that anyone who worked in the film had much to do with Hollywood. They even have photos of the shoot on display at their town hall. Many of the interiors were shot elsewhere. This includes the interior of the Jewel Theatre, which is actually the Kent Theatre in Brooklyn. It wasn't far from where Alan grew up, and he probably saw many films there as a kid. The look of the film is really tight. Alan always prefers warmer colours, and this film is very orange, very yellow, and very red. There's always a glow to this film, as if it's shot during the infamous magic hour. It's the time roughly an hour before sunsets or rises, when the light is just a lovely soft glow. Terence Malick reportedly would only shoot at that hour in his wonderful film, Days of Heaven. I don't think Alan is that organised, but the film looks incredible. The tight colour palette and warm colours continues through the sets, the costumes, and everything else. The cinematographer was Gordon Willis, who had worked with Alan on every film since Annie Hall in 1977. He creates many lovely moments in this film. My favourite is the almost silhouetted shot at the amusement park, where Tom and Cecilia get to know each other. The shadows and lack of detail make the scene much more intimate. It's just them. Willis is a master of using shadow, and he proves it again here. Is that real enough for you? You kiss perfectly. It's what I dreamed kissing would be like. Come away with me to Cairo. Cairo? We'll live in the desert. It, oh, the blue-gold light of sunset falling over your hair. I'm sorry, I'm a little tipsy from the champagne. Willis also brings back his technical wizardry. He used it a lot in Zelig to make something that looked like old footage. Here, he has to make the film within the film, called The Purple Rose of Cairo, look like a film print from the 1930s, and he does a pretty great job. And every time you see an actor do two roles on screen, like the one where Tom meets Gil, you are always looking for the seams. Willis makes that simple effect run perfectly well. This is Willis's eighth and last film with Alan. I don't really know why Alan and Willis stopped working together, but they remained friends and talked highly of each other for the rest of their lives. Willis flirted with directing, but he also shot some bigger budget work, so maybe he wanted a bit more money than Alan was paying. Who knows? But this is the conclusion of a pretty incredible collaboration, one of cinema's most memorable director and cinematographer pairings. As well as Willis, most of the crew that worked with Alan since Annie Hall also return. Juliet Taylor is on casting, Susan Emos edits the film, Robert Greenhut is the producer, 
Jeffrey Curlin is on costumes, and the costumes are great, from the actors on screen to the street-level losers. New to the team is production designer Stuart Wurzel, who had his work cut out for him making the vintage sets. It's not just the vintage shop frontages, but the inside of a couple of cafes and inside that theatre. It's also the lovely vintage cars. Alan's regular Mel Bourne was not available and recommended Wurzel, who would go on to win an Oscar for his work on Hannah and Her Sisters. There are two big could-have-beens in terms of the cast. Where Alan landed says a lot about what he was trying to do. The first was Alan himself. This was back in 1985, and so far Alan had made 12 films, and only one didn't have him starring in it, 1978's Interiors. And as much as Alan was an acclaimed director, he was now a recognisable, bankable star. But he kept making noises about not wanting to be the star of all of his films, and now his latest script was another where he didn't have a role. His studio, Orion Pictures, asked Alan to consider being in the film. A lot is made of Alan's contract and his creative control. Yes, he has full creative control, but he doesn't close his door to suggestions. He mostly ignores them, but he is occasionally happy to play nice. He wants his films to have the best possible chance. So Alan looked into starring in this film and to take the male lead of the man who jumps off the screen. Trouble was, he knows he's not a dashing type, and he would have to rewrite the film to make his character a B-list side part that escapes. Not really the type of dashing handsome man that would be in a 30s white telephone film. Alan ultimately decided to return to the idea of the dashing adventurer. And you can see how Jeff Daniels ultimately plays the part with his sweet nature that Alan was right. Because you would always be waiting for Alan to be cynical or smart-assed. He would overplay the fish out of water jokes. His character would be an outcast on an adventure like in Bananas or Sleeper. And really, he would not be able to do as good a job as Jeff Daniels. So good thing that after Alan decided not to play the role, he cast Michael Keaton. Yes, Michael Keaton was cast in the role of Tom Baxter and Gil Shepard and actually shot several scenes, including the fairground scene. Keaton wasn't yet a huge star, but he had starred in Mr. Mum in 1983. Photos exist of the production, and then Alan decided it wasn't working and recast the role. It happens sometime, but it's still pretty rare that a lead role is recast after production has started. God knows every year how many films hit the public with bad casting choices that were only discovered when cameras started to roll. But of course, it was expensive and of course frustrating for the actors involved. Alan has simply said that Keaton didn't look right for the part. Keaton was certainly talented enough, had the comic timing, and can play good-natured and likeable. I can't imagine that the performance was off. That Alan could recast a role at all says a lot. There's this perfectionism that's starting to creep in around this point that would arguably get out of control. In the five years that followed this, there were stories of thousands of takes of one scene, rewriting entire films after production started, and even shooting the film September three times. He would recast many people after production started. Throwing days of hard work out because an actor didn't look right was part of Alan's process at this time and it would get worse, but we'll talk about all that in later episodes. Keaton was reportedly disappointed. Alan promised to cast him in something in the future, but that never happened. I assume more because of Keaton than anything else. Three years after this came Beetlejuice, and then the year after that was Batman. Keaton didn't have time to work with Alan. But Alan was right because Jeff Daniels, for me, ends up stealing the show. He was just starting out having had a star turn in terms of endearment, in 1983, but was still waiting for a big lead role. He totally nails the good nature of Tom, and he was nominated for his first ever award for his work here, a Golden Globe. 
She's gonna marry me. You're just, you're wasting your time. Will you get back on the screen? I'm trying to tell Cecilia I'm in love with her. I love you. I'm honest, dependable, courageous, romantic, and a great kisser. And I'm real. Mia Farrow finally shows her skill in her fourth film with Alan. She's not a big, broad actor, but she played broad comedy in Broadway Danny Rose, kind of against type. And she played unattainably beautiful in a Midsummer Night Sex comedy, also kind of against type. She did well, but you feel like maybe others could have done better in those roles. Here, Alan finally has a role suited for Farrow's talents. Farrow is a quieter and more vulnerable screen presence compared to, say, Diane Keaton. We lean in and we feel for her immediately. It really doesn't take much for us to be on her side, just a few men being mean to her. Farrow's really great at being downtrodden. Alan isn't trying to get her to be funny anymore, and it's a strong run in the next few films where Farrow really shines without having to deliver any laughs. When she's not being vulnerable, she does a great deer in the headlights with her big eyes. The scene where we see her enter the Jewel Theatre for the first time, she has a wonderfully joyous look on her face. Funnier still to think that her character had done it a thousand times and is still in love with the cinema. I also love when she realises she is with the movie star Gil and she does a great starstruck. And she nails the full range of emotions in that all-important ending. She's alright, God, I don't believe it. You're Gil, I've seen you in lots of movies. Where's Tom? Oh, Broadway Bachelors, right? Right? Yeah, 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 well, you know. Honeymoon in Haiti? Done about six. You were scream. Thank you. There's very few other cast members. Danny Aiello gets billing as the horrible husband. He's been up for roles in Annie Hall and Broadway Danny Rose and finally gets to work with Alan on screen. Diane Weist appears as a working girl. Both are good at what they do and neither get much to work with. They both arrive, now their work, and then go. I'm not sure if Alan really understood what he had with Diane Weist, but she would work with Alan in his next several films and she would really shine there. The cast that is much more interesting to me are the stars of the fictional film The Purple Rose of Cairo. They are having fun chewing up the screen with their shocked looks and affected airs. Many of them are British and have fun playing posh and upper class. Zoe Caldwell and John Wood in particular steal the show. Edward Herman would work with Alan again. And why not? He and his fellow actors look like they're having a riot. And then I love all the townsfolk. They don't look like they're having fun. They're panicked and hilarious. Irving Metzman, who worked with Alan several times, is great as the theatre owner. I love the panicked crowds and the ones that yell back at the screen. Hey, what the hell kind of movie is this? Edward said it was a romance set all over the world. Look, don't tell us your sad stories. You think we like this? Look at this. They sit around and talk and no action, nothing happens. I want my money back. This is outrageous. Why don't you stop yapping? We've got problems of our own. You can't talk to my wife like that. Who do you think you are? I'm a genuine countess with a lot of dough, and if that's your wife, she's a tub of guts. Alan does a lot of cuts to the faces of the public, and he's once again using that Federico Fellini trick of choosing really interesting faces. Dick Hyman returns for the score. He was at the top of his game with Zelig and Broadway Danny Rose. Here, he kind of stays out of the way with a supportive original score, helping to paint some emotions. There's some peppy jazz or simple piano here and there. Hyman also writes an exotic score for the film within the film, but the score mainly keeps out of the way. This isn't a showy music film. Still, a commercial soundtrack was released, and I wish that there was some sort of pristine digital edition or newly pressed vinyl. There's a couple of diegetic music moments that steal the film. The nightclub number in the film within the film, the cute scene of Cecilia and Gil in the instrument shop, and of course the use of cheek to cheek in the opening credits and the final scene. 
It's the motif that ties the film's beginning and end. Alan famously dislikes a lot of his work. I don't think he thinks the films are bad. He just makes the point that whatever he wanted to make when he came up with the idea, the finished film is a compromise. He hates his films, but he acknowledges that his view of his own films is different to many others. What makes The Purple Rose of Cairo stand out in this context was that this film Alan actually liked. He liked Stardust Memories and Broadway Danny Rose, but this was the favourite of his own films for many years. It's the one he'd mention when asked. Over the years, he's also made some positive noise about Match Point, but still, he mainly hates his own work. How can he come off the screen? It's impossible. It's never happened before in history. Just because a thing never happened before doesn't mean it can't happen for a first time. Alan was pretty much his own industry at this point. The Purple Rose of Cairo was the 91st most successful film of 1985, grossing just under 10 million in the US. 90 other films in that one year did better, including Missing in Action 2, a Chuck Norris sequel, and the re-release of 1961's 101 Dalmatians. Yet, this film remains one of the most acclaimed in Alan's catalogue. Alan's individual films were making less impact on the popular culture, but Alan was still a hugely popular figure. And Orion Pictures, Alan's studio, was banking on Alan in the long run. And his next film would be Hannah and Her Sisters, a big hit. Also, Alan was a huge star in Europe and abroad. To steal a line from a film that came out a year earlier, Alan was becoming more selective with his audience. And he was carving himself a career like no other American filmmaker. What The Purple Rose of Cairo lacked in box office bucks, it was made up for by critical acclaim. Critics love this one. They're like all of this era of Woody Allen films, but these kind of love letters to cinema itself always does well with the critics. See Cinema Paradiso or The Artist or dozens of others. There's a joke made by David Lee Roth of Van Halen fame that critics love Elvis Costello because they look like Elvis Costello. And that principle probably applies here, because critics would love a film that references the golden age of Hollywood and fetishizes old theatres. There's a passing reference to the Brown Derby, the famous restaurant frequented by the Hollywood elite in the 30s. This is a film for the cine literate, people who know what the Brown Derby is. For everyone else, they had Ghostbusters and Indiana Jones. I have to agree with the critics on this one. This film is a treat, one of Alan's best, I think it gets forgotten a little because Alan doesn't star in it, and it's not one of his big sprawling casts, and it's not set in modern times, and there's no New York in sight. It's a small story and can be quite serious. And the film's title, The Purple Rose of Cairo, doesn't really say much about the story or the characters. What's funny is that Alan has made a film about escapist fantasy films and managed to make it quite romantic and escapist. No one wants to relive the Great Depression, but who wouldn't want to be swept away by some attractive character from on screen? At the end of the first night, Tom and Cecilia are alone at the carousel and they kiss, whilst Dick Hyman's lovely score plays in the background. It's the stuff that movies are made of. Jason, I'm bored. I'm bored with cocktail parties and opening nights. I'm bored with evenings at the opera and weekends at the races. A few days in Paris might be just the thing to get the creative juices flowing again. I can have George Cable the Ritz for the usual suite. I'm not talking about Paris. I'm talking about someplace completely different. Like Morocco or Egypt. Ooh, boat trip down the Nile sounds so romantic. I've got just the dress to wear the pyramids. <laughs> it's a little slight, but that also comes with what Alan was trying to do in the 80s. A film a year meant that not every film was going to be an event, and instead of the Annie Hall thing of trying to stuff every idea into his film, Alan was free to explore one idea 
and do it really well. This isn't a film that had a lot of deleted scenes and unrealized subplots. What really strikes me on many rewatches is that even without the urban setting and the fast dialogue, it still feels like a Woody Allen film. There's still God and meaning, there's still that mix of European influence and American storytelling. There's comedy and tragedy, and Allen would play off those opposing tensions for the rest of his career. But this film is where Allen's skills as a director really come to the fore. And I would say that it's finally around this time that Allen becomes a better director than he is a writer. Previously for Allen, all the things that made him great was in the script. But now he was a director that could take a nice idea, some sweet moments, and an unhappy ending, and make it all work in the execution. And I wonder if that's why Allen feels so fondly about this film in particular, because he finally arrives as a director. And I was thinking about some very deep things, about God and his relation with Irving Sachs and R.H. Levine. And I, I was thinking about life in general, the, the origin of everything we see about us, the, uh, the finality of death, and how almost magical it seems in the, in the real world, as, a, as opposed to the world of celluloid and flickering shadows. Where did you find this clown? <laughs> Some fun facts about the Purple Rose of Cairo. Jeff Daniels went on to much bigger fame, of course, and in 1991, he started a theatre company in Michigan, where he grew up, in a building owned by his grandfather that had a pizza parlour. He paid for the renovations of the building and founded the business. He called it after the film that gave him his breakthrough. Still running today, it's called the Purple Rose Theatre Company. Piermont celebrated 30 years since their town hit the big screen in 2015. People actually formed a Depression-era flash mob, and the town was transformed into the 30s with vintage cars and street signs made by local artists. Production designer Stuart Wurzel attended a special panel, and locals who were there the first time around shared their memories. And finally, there's some cameos of note. Mia Farrow's own sister Stephanie plays her sister in the film, and future Lord of the Rings star Viggo Mortensen apparently had a role that was cut out of the film, but he didn't even know he wasn't in it until he took his entire family to see the film at a cinema. Cecilia, what are you doing here? Meeting Gil Shepard. They all gone. The, what, do you, what do you mean? I went back to Hollywood. Gil too? Mr. Shepard, yeah. Soon as Tom Baxter went back up on the movie screen, couldn't wait to get out of here. He said this was a close call for his career. Thanks for listening to this episode. What do you think of The Purple Rose of Cairo? Was it too subtle? Would it have been better with Michael Keaton? Let me know your thoughts at woodyallenpages at gmail.com. I will compile all the questions into a special episode. Okay, if you got to this bit, this is the bit where I talk about support. I want to, as always, thank all the Patreon subscribers. I am absolutely open to ideas when it comes to more stuff that I can do for you. The Patreon subscribers do get the option of knowing the whole season ahead of time so they can watch along. They get digital copies of my books and also an ebook of all the podcast scripts. I'm trying to think of more things to do. Other people do live chats and stuff, but you don't want to hear from me on that. But really, I am so grateful for the support, especially through the break. If you want to find out how you can be part of this club that absolutely wants you for a member, you can find links in the description. Other ways to support me include a tip service called Buy Me A Coffee. Some of you have already bought me a coffee on that service this season, so thanks a lot. There's also posters and merch of the podcast artwork, but I'll highlight all those things in other episodes. But links to how to support us are all in the description. Otherwise, the important thing as always is to spread the word. Tell a friend. 
You can follow me on social media everywhere at Woody Allen Pages. And of course, check out the website, WoodyAllenPages.com. Not huge amounts going on in Woody Allen land, but he does have a book coming out soon. Next week, we look at the film that once again had Allen denying it was based on any real events. Thanks for listening. And my heart beats so that I can hardly speak. And I seem to find the happiness I seek When we're out together dancing cheek to cheek Listen, Tom, I don't know what they're charging you, but those champagne bottles are filled with ginger ale. That's the movies, kid. I don't care. I love every minute of it.